0: All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, we are in Acts chapter 2, working our way through the values that drove the early church. We've been looking at the five values that drove the early church and talking about how they shape our experience as a church. So grab your Bibles and flip over to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. And. uh, in our Bibles, it's going to be page 911. Now, while you're flipping over there, I've got a couple important things that um, I wanted to bring you in the loop on and, and um, get you praying about. First is Monday night, um, we have our meeting with the city to get our final approval for our construction permit. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of good news. Can we get the pictures up there of the building? Um, we've been doing some renovation. We've graciously been able to get a demolition permit. And so we've started taking some, 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 doing some tear out. Uh, that's the main area we've been ripping stuff up, which is a lot of fun. Uh, some unexpected surprises, as you can imagine. Some of them, if you ever watched any of the, the home and garden uh, rehab shows, you know you always find problems you don't expect. Uh, you find things buried that shouldn't be there. Um, but occasionally you find something gold, like uh, that's actually really nice unfinished hardwood flooring in the middle of the uh, the gathering space. So um, we've been considering what to do with that. Um, anyway, so Monday night we're meeting with um, the, uh, uh, the city to get our final construction permit. So you can be praying about that because uh, right now we're slated for um, approval. And um, uh, Lord willing, it's all going to move ahead as we should. If so, uh, Tuesday morning we could have our construction permit. Uh, and as soon as we have our construction permit, we can release our our teams to move sp- full steam ahead. At this point, it's been doing all all prep work. Okay. All right, um, and, and by the way, if you want to stay updated on what's happening in the city uh, or, or, or on the, <laughs> in our rehab, uh, sign up for the city, which is our online communication tool. You can also join us on Facebook. Trailhead Church has a Facebook page, and we've been posting pictures and other things like that. The other thing I want to remind you about is next week is our anniversary service, um, and uh, that, that's kind of an exciting time for us. Um, uh, because our space here is fairly limited, um, it really is not very often that we get to meet as a single church for a single meeting. Um, we, we have two services, and, and so at the Wild, it gives us the opportunity, to get everybody in one space. We did this last year, and it was just an exciting time of worship, and um, it really was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to show up early. Okay, because we're expecting it to be packed. Um, The seating capacity over there is 350. That's if every chair is filled. Um, And so we're going to be um, packing the place out pretty good. So I'm going to ask you to show up early. The second thing I'm going to ask you to do is sit in the middle. Okay, not along the edges. Sit in the middle. You're like, well, why would I do that? If I show up early, I show up early so I can get the best seat. Right. That's why you show up early. Uh, because when you take the best seat along the aisles, um, our guests show up, and, and especially if they show up after we start singing, they walk in and there's nowhere for them to sit. They can't see the center. They don't know where to sit. Uh, and for someone who's brand new, that can be kind of a threatening experience. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I don't know if there's space for me here. And then they got to you know, bump next to people and, and try to find seats and the rest of that. We want, we want our guests to have um, a good experience. And so I'm going to ask you guys to show up early. Sit in the middle let's make the uh the aisles open and the seats uh which sometimes would be the best seats let's let's leave those open to honor our guests, okay, you guys with me on that um so next week that's at ten a m that's the service, so plan to show up a little bit early, uh especially with kids because um we're going to have all the kids checking into a single service um that's going to be a lot of kids okay I'm expecting probably just shy of 100 kids uh, at the service, and so you'll help us if you show up a little bit early um, for checking in your kids, okay? All right, so that's next week. All right, this morning, we are in Acts chapter 2, continuing our series looking at the values of the early church. Let's take a look at verses 42 through 47. Let's read these, okay? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Word of the Lord. All right, we've taken a look at the five values we've been looking at the five values that drove the early church okay over the last three weeks we've taken a look at truth. Um, they were devoted to the Apostles doctrine. They were, they, were, they were looking at how God's Word intersected the reality of their lives. Okay, how does the truth that God has revealed impact how I live and how I conduct my life and, and the rest of that? We've looked at community, uh, fellowship, that idea of, of, of a relational generosity, right? They shared life, right? It was life on life, sharing joys, sharing pains, sharing goods, um, and, and learning to live for others instead of just living for ourselves, right? That sense of community, that shared life. Okay, We took a look at prayer last week, and we talked about um, the dynamic nature of prayer and how um, they were devoted to the prayers, both both private and corporate prayers, and how in entering into prayer, they not only were able to bring their requests to God and bring their hearts to God, but God was able to engage their hearts and change their hearts in beautiful ways. This morning, we're taking a look at this idea of mission. Next week, we'll be looking at worship as we gather at the Wildy. But this week, we're looking at this idea of mission and uh, mission is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in our passage, in Acts 2, um, 42 through 47. Right? It never says they were devoted to the mission of God. It doesn't say that. They were devoted to the, the first four things. But what we see is, as we see a description of, of their activities, of their life, of their passion, what we see is actually them living on mission. Okay? We see the outgrowth of the mission. In fact, we see it very clearly in 46, where they met day by day in the temple. Um, that was not them um, meeting in the temple like we would go to church, right? They were meeting in Solomon's porch, which was a, uh, an, an area of the temple that was given to public discourse. and as they met there, they would share about Jesus, right They were there to meet people, move into relationship with people, and share the love. Of Jesus with people. Of course, they were doing it very practically. We see the description. They were they were selling their goods and being living very sacrificially, but they were also sharing um, the gospel, uh, speaking the truth of the gospel to uh, to people who needed it. So here's the thing, guys. When we're talking about mission, this is what I want you to hear. When we're talking about mission, we're talking about a lot more um, than just a set of discrete behaviors. Like like we do these things on mission, right? We although it's important that we do things on mission, when we're talking about mission, we're really talking about purpose because at the heart of mission is the purpose that drives us, right? When we're talking about mission, we're talking about where we want to go and how we want to get there. So it speaks both to the goal of where we're going and to the method by which we get there, right? Here's the thing, you guys. Everybody has a mission, Everybody has a mission, right? Now, maybe you haven't really carefully thought through your mission. Maybe you haven't formulated it. Some of you have, right? Some people have, like, mission statements for their families uh, and things like that. But I guarantee you, even if you haven't formulated it, even if you haven't tried to codify it and put it in words and post it on a wall, you have a mission. There is a goal that you're working toward, and there's a methodology that you're employing to get there, right? The more meaningful your mission the more purpose you'll have in pursuing it. The more meaningful your mission to your life, the more purpose, the more drive, the more energy you're going to bring to it, and the more fulfilling it'll be when you accomplish it. Now, here's the thing, you guys, and this is kind of where we're going to talk about how, how all this fits together. There's, there's, there's no greater mission for our lives than God's mission, right? Right? God's mission is what ultimately frees us uh, to the greatest purpose that, that will release within us the greatest drive that will that will release within us the greatest energy for pursuing and sacrificing and and and, and honestly give us more joy in the process. Right. So, um, <clears throat> your personal life mission will have more meaning and drive and greater purpose. You'll have more joy if it's aligned with God's mission for your life. Right. He created us. He knows. Why we're here. He knows where we're going. He knows um, how we're wired. And, um, and so it's important for us to understand the mission of God and how it intersects with our lives, right? One of the values that drove the early church, clearly, one of the, the things that drove them um, was this idea of mission. And it should be driving us as a church and, and us as individuals. And so that means it's essential that we know what our mission is, right? We need to know what it is, and we need to know how we're supposed to be pursuing it. Now, there's actually quite a bit of debate today about what the mission of the church should be, um, and quite a bit of confusion about it. I think it helps if, if we understand the mission of the church in the broader context of the mission of God. Right. We're talking about the mission of church. We're, we're talking about how we fit into God's greater plan, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put our, our six acts of, of the Bible up again, um, just to remind you, we hit this every once in a while. Um, but I think it's really important for us to recontextualize, understand where we fit in the broader story, right? When you look at the Bible, uh, it, it, it's kind of a crazy book, right? It's a lot of crazy stories. It's, it, was, it was written by about 40 different authors over 2,000 years, um, three different languages. Um, and, 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 and when you come to it and you just read story after story after story, sometimes it's like, how does this all fit together? It helps if you realize that there is a, a plot to the story, that there's a mission driving the activity of Scripture, and we can summarize the the entire Bible, the story of the Bible, or the mission of God in these six acts, okay? These six stages of the story, right? At the beginning, God creates, right? We look at Genesis 1 and 2. God creates all things. He declares all things good. He, he creates mankind specifically in His own image so that mankind uniquely can share a fellowship with Him, right? Can, can um, exist uh, in connection with Him. So... We, we can pause right there, right? The story begins with God creating. Why did God create? What was the purpose that drove the activity? If we can understand that, it'll help us to ultimately understand the broader mission of God. Now, now nowhere in Scripture do, do we find a passage that says, this is exactly why God created, right? But we do find hints, and in fact, we find common themes that, that, in fact, when you're studying it, it becomes incredibly clear. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were created specifically to be to the praise of His glory. That, that, in a sense, we were created uniquely in His image. So we could share His glory, as it's poured out on us, and praise His glory in return. He created us so that we could see Him. And we uniquely, made in His image, could glorify Him his glory. I know some of you are thinking, well, that sounds a little self-centered, <laughs> right? God created us so that uh, he could have a chorus singing his praise. Yes. Yes, he did. And that's not self-centered. That's, in fact, the only way it should be, right? He's like, he's like a great artist who's basically saying, I'm not going to hide my heart in the back room not allow him to see it. I'm going to put it on display so that, so that it can be seen and appreciated. Right? For God to say that, that His glory should be praised, that we should live to the praise of His glory, is simply a statement of reality. If He is, in fact, the measure of all that is glorious, of all that is beautiful, of all that is right, if He is the measure of, of all the things that stir within us joy and awe and wonder, how could anything else be at the center but His glory? It wouldn't be humble for Him to put something else in the center. It would be insane right? It would knock the entire universe off kilter. He puts himself at the center because he is the glorious center, right? And all things find their proper place in relation to him. So we were created ultimately to see his glory, right? He didn't create us out of loneliness. He didn't create us out of need. He created us because there was so much in him, so much good, so much love, so much joy that he wanted a unique creature that could live in the overflow of that goodness, we were designed to find our joy in His glory, to find our center in His being. So He created on mission so that His glory would be glorified, so that we would live in the joy of the outpouring of His character. God, the ultimate good, seeking uh, a unique creature who would live in the praise of that good. Now, when humans rebelled in stage two against God, When we committed cosmic treason against God and sinned against God, we basically said to him, you will not be the center, we will. You will not be the measure of what's right, we'll determine what's right. We will be like God. That's literally what they said. We will be at the center. And in so doing, they rejected the God who created them. And from our perspective, seemingly derailed the mission of God. Because now God's creation is marked by sin marked by rebellion, bent on self-glory instead of revolving around His glory. Here's the thing. When mankind rebelled against God, it didn't change God's mission. It just presented a new obstacle in its way. The obstacle now is how could a sinful, rebellious humanity live in the overflow of God's glory? How can an unholy humanity enter into the holiness of God? That's an insurmountable challenge because in our sin, in our rebellion, we've become unclean. And when we enter into the blinding, brilliant, burning presence of pure purity, we are consumed and we are destroyed. There's a gulf fixed because of our rebellion. What's amazing, though, is that God would not be deterred. We would need to be redeemed. We would need to be restored. And God didn't skip a beat. Right there in Genesis chapter three, when mankind rebels against God, as, as God is unpacking to Adam and Eve the consequences of their rebellion, He gives them a promise. He says, There's going to be a seed of the woman, a son of Eve, who will be your hero. He will crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent is able to bruise his heel. It is a promise that there would be a hero who would come that would crush the consequences of sin, who would absorb the pain deserved by that rebellion, a hero who would both suffer and deliver, one who would ultimately redeem and restore. And that begins an age of promise in which God keeps reiterating this promise, The God of mission, on mission, to see his glory at the center, to see his creation live to the praise of his glory, promises again and again and again, I will send a hero. And that promise gets more and more specific and more and more narrow and more and more clear until we see the coming of Jesus. And Jesus is born as that hero. And we find out, miraculously, uh, as a crazy twist to the story, that it's actually God. God coming in the flesh because there was no other hero adequate for the task. There was no human pure who could step into our impurity to redeem us and deliver us. And so Jesus comes and and, um, lives the life we should have lived and then dies the death we deserve to die as our substitute in our place, taking the penalty of our sin, uh, absorbing God's wrath against our cosmic treason in our place. And drinking that bitter cup to the last bit, he dies. And then he rises again. And when he rises again, it proves that God was satisfied in regard to sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He died in our place and God was satisfied in regard to our sin. And so Jesus comes back, offering us forgiveness. For those who will believe in Jesus, place their faith in Christ, their substitute, his record becomes theirs while their record becomes his. Their sin is left on the cross and his resurrection becomes theirs. They are now covered with his rightness, not their rebellion. And then we get to the end of of that chapter of the cross and we see Jesus basically leaving the scene, right? He's resurrected. He doesn't usher in the kingdom immediately. Instead, he takes his little band of followers and and he says, "Uh, I'm leaving you here. See ya. I'll be back later. So we have to ask the question, why did he leave them, right? Why did he leave us? Why are we still here, right? God has the ability, as soon as you become a believer, to say, all right, you're done. You're good, right? And think about what an incredible witnessing tool that would be if every time someone became a believer, they were suddenly snatched off the face of the earth, right? It would freak everybody out, but there'd be people like, "Mm -hmm, maybe I need to pay attention, right? But that's not what he does. We become believers and we stay. Why? It's because we have a unique part of God's mission. All right, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Take a look at these verses. Jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension, and he meets with his disciples, and he says, these are your marching orders. We call this passage the Great Commission, okay? We're going to put the verses up on the screen. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. Jesus says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love that because it's a reminder look, man, this is a season, right? This is an age. This is a chapter in the story. I will be with you until the end of the age, at which time I'll come back physically and inaugurate the kingdom. And during this age, here are your marching orders, right? This is your part. This is why I'm leaving you here. I want you to go out and make disciples, right? He says, go and make disciples. The, word, the verb go literally means as you are going. In other words, as you're living your life, believer in Christ, as you're going about your life, as you're making decisions about your life, picking your career, marrying, having children, uh, settling into a community, finding a neighborhood, picking hobbies, as you are going, make disciples. That's your part of the mission, right? Make disciples. As you are going, I did the work of redemption so you could experience grace. And now I'm telling you to share that grace with others. As you are going through life, make disciples. Now, notice that he doesn't say make converts. As you're going through life, make converts, right? Just go out there and see if you can make people make decisions uh, about who I am or, or what you think they need to believe. It says make disciples. And it's an interesting distinction, right? Because disciples are, are people that are actually students, not people who have just made a decision. Right? A disciple is somebody who, who is coming in line with their faith. In other words, they believe and they're learning what it means to continue believing. They believe and they're learning what it means to walk in that belief. They're learning what that, how that faith impacts every area of their life. And so it's a progressive exploration and discovery and ongoing learning how to submit to The faith that has freed them. A disciple is not ever a finished product. They are a product in process. Be a disciple, somebody who's discovering what it means to walk in your faith. And it's going to change you as you do it, right? Make disciples. So introduce them to the beauty of the gospel and then walk with them into a deeper experience of the gospel. So, be a disciple who makes disciples. That's how we summarize the mission often. Be disciples who make disciples. That means that we're going to be a people who go deep in God's love, and we're going to be a people who share that love with others. Right? So that's essentially the mission of the church in the broader mission of God. The broader mission of God is is that His glory would be at the center, that we would be to the praise of His glory, that we would be released once again um, to be what we were created to be for His glory and for our joy. Our part in that mission at this stage is to be witnesses, to be those who are messengers entrusted with a sacred message of who God is and what He's done how he has provided a way out of the consequences of our sin and a way in to his glory. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Knowing our mission and staying on mission are two different things, right? (laughs) It's easy to know our mission. It's actually really, really challenging to stay on mission. John Ortberg wrote a book called Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. Uh, and in it, he explains that we all live with a sense of mission, this idea that we're all, we all have a goal, a meaningful goal that we're pursuing, and it gives us purpose and direction to our lives, right? We're trying to get somewhere for a good reason, and we have a way to try to get there. But in pursuing our mission, we are, we are inclined to put second things first, right? He puts it this way. Let's put the quote up on the screen. He says this, A shadow mission... Is an authentic mission that has been derailed, often in imperceptible ways. Part of what makes the shadow mission so tempting is that it's usually so closely related to our gifts and passions. It's not 180 degrees off track, it's just 10 degrees off track. Now, you get what he's saying there? A shadow mission is something that is highly aligned with the true mission of our lives. And in the beginning, it honestly seems so closely aligned that it's almost identical, right? 180 degrees is obvious right off the bat, right? You're going in two opposite directions immediately. But if you're only 10 degrees off, it can take a long period of time before the separation becomes obvious. And in fact, it happens so imperceptibly that often we don't even notice until we're so radically off track, we're not even sure we can get back. Right? It's so subtle. And it's in that subtlety that it is so incredibly dangerous. Let me put it this way in terms of your own personal mission, right? You may be pursuing freedom. That may be something that is, that is highly valued to you, right? You want to have a certain level of freedom for whatever reason. Maybe you didn't have a lot of freedom as a kid, or, 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 or maybe you did and you want to emulate that. But you've decided the path to freedom for you, so you have a goal and the methodology is, is to have enough money, right? Right? To have financial freedom is what's going to equip me to be free to pursue what I want to pursue, to experience what I want to experience, right? And and so you start pursuing financial freedom. So you pick a specific career that's going to ultimately lead you into financial freedom, but that career starts eating up all your time. All your spare time is consumed by this career, and in fact, there's so much stress connected with it that it starts robbing what little free time you have left of, of all of its joy. And you just keep thinking, well, when I get to the next promotion, when I get to the next stage of my career, when I get to the next then, and by the time you realize that in your pursuit of freedom, you have actually become enslaved to the very thing you didn't want to have. Like, you, you got your shadow mission. You got a lot of money. But you missed the genuine goal, freedom. You never attained that. And by the time you realize that you've actually lost everything connected to it. You get the money, but you miss the freedom. That's the danger of a shadow mission. You win the wrong game, right? You, 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 you accomplish it, but when you get there, you look at the accomplishment, it's the wrong mountain. <laughs> you got the wrong thing. It's a shadow mission. It's like the real thing, it's related to it, but it actually takes you off course. So in our personal lives, there are shadow missions. It can happen in churches too okay because we are talking about the values of the church right um and there are shadow missions to the church that that um it happens anytime we take a secondary thing and make it the primary thing right we 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 can get off track as a church right and so it's important for us to to realize there are shadow missions in fact there are some very common shadow missions that that we as a church leadership and in fact as a church body need to be aware of and paying attention to right I'll highlight a few of them, right? One of the shadow missions that is really uh, alluring and tempting today, especially for pastors more than than anybody else, especially uh, driven, uh, accomplishment-oriented pastors, is very simply get bigger. That's a shadow mission, right? Get bigger. And what they'll tell you is, man, healthy things grow. Is that true? Yeah. Healthy things do grow, right? You look at the early church. Did they grow? Absolutely. Acts chapter 2, this passage we're reading about, they just had 3,000 people become believers in a single day. Every day, there are more and more people added to the point where, where the church in Jerusalem became a body of over 10,000 people. That's a megachurch by anybody's standards, okay? That is a big church, and, and so healthy things grow. And, but what happens is when you make getting bigger your real goal, you start doing whatever you need to do to grow, and you forget that unhealthy things grow too. There are plenty of unhealthy things that just get bigger when we don't want them to. Growth is not in and of itself a sign of health. And so what ends up happening is if growth is your goal, you stay away from things. You subtly start staying away from things that hinder growth. Right? Here's the thing. The gospel is universally inviting. It's the most beautiful message ever delivered to mankind. I mean, is there a better message than the God of the universe, the God of holiness, loves you? Sent his son to die for you and rise again so that you could receive grace? That's a beautiful message. But there's another part of the gospel. The gospel is universally inviting, but the gospel is also universally offensive. In every culture, in every time, to every people group, there are pieces of the gospel that are wonderful and inviting and warm, and there are pieces that are challenging and alienating and hard. You know why? Because we're sinners. And the gospel comes in and challenges our self-centered, sinful hearts in ways that are hard and challenging and difficult. And so it is universally inviting and universally offensive. What ends up happening is if your goal is to get bigger, you focus on the invitation and you ignore the offense. You stop challenging people with the offensive parts of the gospel, which means you actually hinder their growth and you handicap their spiritual walks. You undercut the mission by making um, converts instead of disciples. And you'll avoid the offense of the gospel and as a result, undercut the effectiveness of the gospel. It's a shadow mission, right? Healthy things do grow, but growing is not a sign of health. Another shadow mission is stay pure, right? When staying pure becomes the mission of the church, we start defining um, spiritual maturity self-control or some other form of staying pure, right? Each church has its own way of doing this. But typically what ends up happening is, is churches who, who have engaged the shadow mission of staying pure, they, they tend to pull away from culture instead of engaging culture. They attack culture instead of understanding culture. Uh, they start to feel a lot of times um, like a bunker, right? That, that little safe haven, Place of 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 um, we're pulled away. We're here. We're safe. Everything out there is dangerous. We're the small faithful band, um, and when they think about mission, it's usually plural, like missions, um, and it's something that's done out there, right? And, and a lot of times they've got a little picture up in, in the church that's a, a map of the United States or a map of the world, and there's a little pin right on the church with threads of yarn going out to the other places in the world, and those are places where they send money, and, and, and they've, they're basically saying those are the people out on mission, Right? But it's very difficult for them to be on mission in their own neighborhoods. They have a difficult time knowing, loving, and understanding their own neighbors. A lot of times when they actually try to reach out to the neighbors, it's more like drive-by evangelism because that feels like such hostile territory. They get out there and they they do things to try to to reach people. But it's like these little forays, uh, uh, stepping out um, and then pulling back. Instead of moving into relationship with people, knowing their neighbors, loving their neighbors where they are, as difficult and as different and as diverse as that neighborhood is, that becomes threatening to them. So they go out and they pull back. And what ends up happening is when staying pure is your, uh, your, your shadow mission. Often you abdicate true mission. You hunker down and you just wait for Jesus to come back. Right? It's like Jesus will take care of it when he finally gets here. Our job is just to stay pure. We're going to stay here in our little bunker and we're just going to wait. You undercut mission. Right? Sometimes the shadow mission is to fix the world. Right? The gospel um, empowers us to be representatives of the kingdom of God here and now. We are to be salt and light. That's the, those are the metaphors used of Scripture. Salt to preserve what is decaying, light to bring light into what is dark. And that means that we are to have a presence in the public sphere. It does mean that we are to have an impact on this world. Right? God's kingdom is not yet fully realized but God's kingdom is present in his people. And as we move forward in the love of Christ and in the name of Christ, we are representatives of that kingdom and we are to work um, to ultimately see um, God's kingdom valued and the values of God's kingdom advance because that's good, good for people and it glorifies God, right? The problem though is when we make that our primary mission, we end up focusing on things like political activism, getting the right person voted into office, (laughs) or more often, making sure the wrong person isn't, right? It's not that we necessarily are so passionate about our candidate. It's usually that we're so passionate against the person we hate, right? Terrified of what would happen if they actually get elected. That, that, That becomes our primary activity, right? Social engagement for some people, right? So many different ways to become socially engaged. Issues of poverty. Right? That becomes the driving force, is, is, is working for justice in areas of poverty and working for justice for people that are disenfranchised and don't have a voice for themselves. Right? Moral platforms. And it could be any number of different moral platforms. Something like a, a, adoption, right? Adoption is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing where we get to model, in many ways, the gospel. We take somebody who, who doesn't have a family and adopt them into the family. Somebody who, who doesn't have a home and we give them a home. Somebody who isn't loved unconditionally and we bring them into a circle of unconditional love, right? It's a beautiful thing. But here's the thing. When those things become primary, the advancement of the gospel becomes secondary. It's a shadow mission. And you know you're off track with these things if your primary motivation in engaging whatever it is, social change, political agenda, moral platform, if your primary agenda and tools are fear and guilt, you're off track. Those are the tools of propaganda, not of the kingdom. Right? If you're driven by fear and you use fear to get people to comply with what you want, if you're driven by guilt and you use guilt on others to get them to do what you want, those are not the motivations of the kingdom. Those are the motivations of a shadow mission undercutting the true mission of the church. God will fix the world, but our mission is not to fix the world, right? Our mission is to be messengers and ambassadors of the grace of God presence of of the kingdom of God in a lost and dying world. We're we're to be salt and light. But our primary motivation is not fear. And our primary tool of getting people to work with us is not guilt. We are to be people above and all defined by our joy and our love, our experience of grace and our expression of mercy. What'll end up happening is if we get off track in this area, we're going to start trying to achieve a goal instead of make disciples. Our primary goal will be to get the right person elected or to get the right problem solved or to get the right platform platformed or the right uh, agenda platformed as opposed to actually making disciples who make disciples. Each of these this is what I want you to catch you guys. Each of these is not totally off. Each of these, in fact, are closely aligned with the actual mission of the church, but they are not the mission. If they become primary, the primary mission becomes Secondary. Each of these is not totally off, but they're off enough that the end result becomes very unhealthy and very ineffective. Here's the thing. There are many, many more ways to get derailed. There are many, many more shadow missions that could um, hijack the true mission of the church. But here's the thing. We're not going to stay on mission by identifying all the shadow missions, right? Right? We're going to stay on mission by keeping our eyes on Jesus. My dad was a banker, and uh, he used to take me into the bank. And, and I remember as a kid, he would show me counterfeit $100 bills, um, which I was really impressed by when I was a little kid. $100 was a lot of money back then. Um, and, and, uh, and, and he would say, you know how you tell the, a counterfeit? I'd look at it. I really couldn't tell. Right? I'm holding something that looks like a genuine $100 bill to me. He's like, counterfeiters are always coming up with new ways to counterfeit money. And by the time you've identified one string of counterfeited money, there's already a new string out there you haven't identified yet. The only way to tell counterfeit money is to become so familiar with the real thing that you know anytime you're holding a fake. It's the only way it works. You have to know the real thing so well that any difference becomes noticeable. Here's the thing. If we're going to stay on mission, we need to be so tuned to the genuine mission that we can smell when we're off. Because if we wait for the final results, we're going to be so far off that often it's very difficult to even get back, right? We need to be so in tune with the mission of God that when we're tempted to drift off mission, it becomes obvious. There's a little thing that triggers and says, hey, I I think we're getting a little off here. So that means we need to have some core practices to help us move in this core value, okay? We we need to put some things in place that are going to kind of be markers to help us measure whether or not we are moving in the mission of God and help us grow in it, okay? So first, first, um, we will push in to experience God's love. We will push in. To experience God's love. You're like, wait a minute, you're talking about mission, (laughs) right? Isn't mission outward? Mm -mm. It is first inward, right? It may seem like a strange place to start, but this is where it has to start. Here's the thing God isn't interested in what you can do for Him, He isn't interested in how much you can accomplish for Him, He isn't impressed by your initiative or your energy or your gifts. He's not looking for you to be great for Him. God is interested in your heart. He's interested in how you respond to Him. Remember, what, what is the primary mission of God? That we would live to be to the praise of His glory? That means that if we're going to be on mission, we need to tune our hearts to praise His glory. If we don't start here we can't move forward in any other way. We can't be on mission for God and not delighting in God. Now, it doesn't mean God can't use us. God can use anything or anyone at any time. But it does mean that if our lives are going to be aligned with the mission of God, we have to begin with hearts that delight in God, hearts that are centered on the glory of God, hearts that look at the purity of God and say, that is delightful and worthy of my praise. So here's the thing, you guys. We weren't designed to be initiators with God. We were designed to be responders. God isn't looking for us to do great things for us. He does great things for us. And as we look at the great things He's done, we respond in gratitude. And we respond in love. And we respond in joy. And we respond in humility. We were designed first to be responders and then initiators. If we don't begin with the response, we're going to be pursuing a shadow mission. The first call of mission is to be a disciple who then goes and makes disciples, one who is deeply aware of how profoundly loved he or she is in Christ. Are right, you ever been on a flight? Yes. Uh, you ever ignored the the steward at the beginning? Yes, when they 're up there giving you the safety spit pe- speech. Um, one of the things they tell you to do is is in the, in the uh, occurrence of, of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, these little masks will fall out of the ceiling, right In the case, you do that, and they take it, and they model you know you first put it on yourself and then you put it on your kid, right? Why is that important? If there's a sudden loss of cabin pressure, why don't you just stick it on your kid first? Every parent is first going to be like, I've got to take care of my child. Because in the case of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, it's going to be really hard to breathe. In fact, you're probably going to hyperventilate very quickly. And if you're sitting there fumbling, trying to get this thing on your panicked kid's head, you're probably going to pass out on top of them. And as you pass out, you're of no use to yourself and you're of no use to them. To be on mission first means growing in your experience of God's love. Because if you're not experiencing it, you're going to have a really hard time leading others to. If your heart is not undone by grace, if your heart is not broken in beautiful ways by God's love, you're going to have a really hard time leading others to be undone by that grace. Which means you need to be walking in the core values, right? How do we engage the grace of God? We don't, again, we don't initiate. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to break my heart for God, (laughs) right? God loves me, bam, break my heart. I'm now responding. We need to lead ourselves to those things that confront us with God's grace. We need to put ourselves in the situations in which we see God's initiation beautifully on our behalf where we will respond. This is why we need to be engaged with truth and community and prayer and worship, because those are the ways God communicates His grace to our souls. And invites us to respond. This is why we need to be in the word. This is why we need to to come to the gathering of the church where where it is taught and and come to the smaller gatherings of the church where it's studied and and why we on our own individually open it daily and, and, and get into it. This is why we enter into prayer, not just to get things from God, but to meet God and be with God and allow God to confront us in deep and powerful spiritual ways. This is why we live in community with the community of faith. Not just so that they can do nice things for us and help us move and we need some help, but so that their love spurs our love and their generosity spurs our generosity and their joy spurs our joy and their sorrow spurs our, our heart to be generous with them. This is why we need to worship regularly, putting before ourselves the glories and incredible nature of God, provoking our hearts with the beauty of His nature So that the lesser beauties find their place in our lives, and we don't come become infatuated with a lesser beauty. We need to engage ourselves with the core values of the church so that our hearts will respond. We need to be disciples. God's mission is never to get more out of you than God wants to get in you. Think about it this way, you guys. You are God's mission. God's mission isn't something He wants you to go do for Him. You are God's mission. God's mission is to have a people who live to the praise of His glory, who are inviting others in to live to the praise of His glory. So we need to push in to experience God's love. And then we need to push out to share God's love, right? As we deeply experience God's love, we'll be compelled to share that love with others in very practical ways, right? Actually, meeting people in their need. I'm not. I'm not talking about a, a, a um, an abstract expression of love where we just love humanity. I foster up fine, you know kind, fond feelings. For people from a distance. I'm talking about actually loving people in their need, actually meeting people where they hurt, actually um, sacrificing for the good of others, right? And sometimes we're going to do that as an organic overflow of our joy, right? When you're deep tasting deeply of, of God's love for you, you're going to become a more generous person. It's just going to happen. In fact, you ever notice somebody who, who just is full of joy? They really have no choice but to share that joy. You ever notice that, right? When somebody is just full of joy, aren't they just overflowing with joy, right? They're they're more inclined to smile. They're more inclined to be polite. They're more inclined to be socially gracious. They're more inclined to be generous because they're so full of joy, it just organically flows out of them. Joy is one of those things that we're, it it creates this compulsion to generosity. So sometimes there's going to be an organic expression uh, of generosity coming from our experience of God's love. Sometimes, though, it's going to be more an act of obedience than of joy. Sometimes we're going to know that person's in need and God told me I'm supposed to share with people in need. I don't really feel like it right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. One, because it glorifies the God who told me I should. And two, it's an act of spiritual warfare against my, spirit, my, my selfish heart. Right? I, I'm so inclined to, to build my own kingdom, protect my own borders, live for my own glory, build my own comfort. When I sacrifice for the good of others, even when I don't feel like it, it's an act of spiritual warfare. It's a step of faith where I'm saying, God, I know you are more delightful than the thing I'm giving up. You're better than what I'm sacrificing. Right now, it doesn't necessarily feel like it, but I'm going to step out in faith, knowing you're going to meet me on the other side of this step. That when I serve this person or sacrifice for this person or give for this person, when I I meet them in their need, even though I don't feel like it right now, I know you're going to meet me on the other side and you're going to reawaken in me a deep experience of your joy. So we love people in practical ways. And that's an essential part of God's mission, right? God loved us in practical ways, (laughs) didn't he? Right? He didn't just love us from a distance, say, I have fond feelings for you. Good luck. Right? No, he he entered into our mess. He became one of us. He bore our burden. He paid our debt. He suffered in our place. Right? We find this phrase so often in scripture, God loved, so he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. God's love prompts him to give. Our experience of love leads us to an experience of generosity. We need to recognize that that is, in fact, an essential part of the mission that's been entrusted to us. To grow in giving in real and practical ways. And this means with people that are like us, and right? people that are not like us, people that think like us, and people that don't think like us. It means being generous in the social circles, right? Giving grace to people. On Facebook, right? Facebook has become like the new roadway, right? We talk about road rage, right? People get all angry in their car because they feel disconnected and isolated from the true humanity of the people on the road with them. How dare you share the road with me? How dare you need to merge in front of me? Don't you know I'm in a hurry? We become incredibly self centered and self focused on the highway. I think a lot of us do the same thing on Facebook we forget the humanity of the people with which we are interacting. The humanity of the people that think differently than us, that are maybe posting things that provoke us, ideas that we find threatening, that trigger fears in our heart or resentment that we strongly disagree with. We need to realize in those moments that the mission of God calls us to an expression of grace. Doesn't mean we don't speak truth. Don't hear that? Right? Doesn't mean that we don't enter into real honest dialogue but it does mean that we do it with the purpose of glorifying God and honoring the imago Dei, the image of God and the person we're discussing it with, whether they're a believer or not, whether they're they're a Muslim or not, whether they're like us or not, or in, in a circle of our approval. We're moved to be generous, to act in love. We should, of all people, be a source of grace not of conflict. A source that recenters people. Remember, a shadow mission is winning an argument. The true mission is to make disciples. And so we need to be people that are um, giving generously and working to help our neighbor and to bless them, right? I hear all the time about people in our church that are doing things I didn't even know were happening, and I love it. Like, we have a community group that'll be organizing a food drive over here and another group that's going down to rebirth in East St. Louis, helping rebuild houses in East St. Louis. Things I didn't know about, but they're things that are just organically being organized and happening. I absolutely love that stuff. There's other stuff that we do organize, like like our Affordable Christmas and other events like that where we're actively pulling everybody together in very practical ways. But here's what we need to recognize. Serving in that way is an essential part of the mission that's been entrusted to us. So we will um, push out and serve. And in addition to that, um, we we will speak up so others can hear. We will not simply serve people. We will not simply show people the love of Christ in our actions. We will tell people of the love of Christ. We are ambassadors, which means we've been entrusted a message And that message is about a God who loved them enough to send their son, send his son to die for them and rise again for them. A God who is on mission, and part of that mission is to redeem and restore. And that message, that sacred message, has been entrusted to us, which means that an essential part of the mission of making disciples is discipling unbelievers to become believers. We disciple believers into a deeper walk of their faith, and we disciple unbelievers to become believers. We, we, We share the love of Christ with them in practical ways, but we also have to tell them of the love of Christ. The mission of the church is to be a witness to the person and the work of Jesus, and that requires us not only to love them in our deeds, but to love them in our words. It means we need to tell them of God's love for them the price that God paid for them to be redeemed and restored. There's an interesting video that's been floating around for a couple of years um, on the Internet. I've often wondered if, if uh, by a guy named Penn Jillette. I've often wondered if he's regretted putting it out there because um, I think it gets a lot of airplay. Um, but it's actually, when you look at it, this Gillette is a, a comedian and a, um, an illusionist and, and a performer. Um, he is known for his very outspoken nature. He is a very confrontational guy. And, um, uh, and so he shared this video and it was just raw and very honest. He, he put this video blog out and, uh, and I really appreciated it. But basically after one of his shows, somebody walked up to him um, and basically was like, hey, thanks for the show. And he's like, yeah, whatever, man. Uh, and the guy's like, hey, I just really feel like I'm supposed to give you this. And he gave him a Bible. I really feel like God's telling me to give you this because Jesus died for you and rose again for you so you could be forgiven. And I've put my name and my phone number in the front cover if you want to have further conversation. And he said in some ways it was really awkward because this guy just randomly walked up and gave him this Bible and, and uh, he's like, you know, like, don't you know, I don't believe this stuff, right? But thanks. But as he was reflecting on it in his video, um, this is what he said. Hes like "I, I want you." To, he's like, "I want you to know I wasn't offended." This is what he said. He said, "How much do you have to hate somebody? not to proselytize, To believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? This is from an unbeliever. How much do you have to hate somebody, to believe that eternal life is possible and not tell them? Yes, we are called to be messengers to go deep in our experience of the love of God, to share that love in practical ways with the people around us, and then to tell people the good news that God has broken into our story to redeem and restore. Will some people get offended? Sure. Yeah, that'll happen. Will some people even make fun of you or reject you or or make you pay some sort of other social cost? Probably that, that could happen. Probably not as much as you're afraid it will, but it could. Will you get physically hurt or lose your job? Probably not in America. In most of the world, yes. In most of the world, when when you share your faith, you're actually risking your life. Middle East and and, and the Far East and, and places, honestly, right now where the church is exploding. Right? Unlike here. There's an incredible price to be paid for verbally sharing your faith. So yeah, those things can happen. But here's the thing. The mission of God reminds us that this age is not all there is. Right? It didn't Jesus say that I'll be with you until the what the end of the age? Right? This is a season. This is a stage. This is a chapter in the greater story. When we get on the mission of God, it reminds us this isn't all there is. This life isn't the grand goal. Whether, whether I can have a happy, uh, carefree, um, hassle-free, low-maintenance life, that, that is not the goal of this time. I was left here with a purpose. I was left here with a mission. As I am going, The mission of God infuses everything I do with a greater eternal meaning. And if I lose sight of that, I am living a shadow mission for my life. I will accomplish many, many things during my life. And at the end of the day, I'll look back and say, holy cow, some of those, many of those were the wrong thing. I can't think of anything more tragic than actually finishing the line, saying I won and looking back and realize you were running the wrong race. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be cost. But that cost is part of what God's going to use to actually work his love more deeply in you. Sometimes we only grow through resistance. And if we shy away from the resistance, we stunt our growth. If you've been struggling, if you have been paying a price, or maybe even being afraid of paying the price, I'm just going to tell you don't be discouraged. And don't run away. Allow God's grace to come in and reignite your joy. God's not disappointed in you. He wants more for you. He loves you. He died to make you new. So celebrate that grace and in the renewal of that joy. Share that joy. Practically with others, verbally with others. But let's be disciples who make disciples. All right, I'm going to create some space. We're going to pray and I'm going to have a little bit of time. Just to let God speak to your heart. Um, and um, we're going to share communion in a moment. Um, I want to remind you there's a worship response card in your bulletin. If you're new, if you're a guest, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to know how you got here. If you have a prayer request, we'd love for you to write it down. Drop it in one of the boxes up front or by the door. Um, we'll be praying with you and for you. Okay? but let us know you were here. So let me pray for us. We'll go on time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, I thank you that you've never lost sight of your mission to see your glory at the center of all things and to see us live to the praise of that glory. I thank you, Lord, that in a radical, unexplainable demonstration of love, you paid the price necessary for us to be forgiven and brought back into relationship with you, that we can be cleansed from what we've done and freed to what you've done. Not only do we not bear the consequences of our rebellion, our shortcomings, our failings, But we get all the benefits due to Christ. This is an inexplicable generosity. One that should awaken our hearts to to, to gratitude and love and joy. Spirit, I pray that you will wake us up to the beauty of the work of Christ this morning. And in so doing, that you will move us to a boldness and a joy and an eagerness, a real purpose that would set us free into what you're doing in this world, that we might be on mission with you. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.